0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Michael Donovan and Nancy Green about their partnership and marriage and design about how good business is good design and about what it's like to work for yourself When you do this yourself and you're sort of like it's 10 o'clock at night and you're thinking, what typeface should I use? (laughs) (laughs) What should the background be? Sounds like fun It is, because you say, self, what do you like? (laughs) Here's Debbie Millman.
1: Donovan Green is a legendary agency in New York City that has worked with some big clients. Here are just a few of them. Texas Instruments, American Girl, Herman Miller, and Coca-Cola. They do everything from branding and identity to information and environmental design. As you might have guessed from their name, Donovan Green is a partnership. Michael Donovan and Nancy Green are both accomplished designers and business people, and they are also partners in life. They're here to talk about working together, working apart, and how they've managed their decades-long collaboration. Who does what exactly? And what do they talk about over dinner? Hi, Nancy. Hi, Michael. Hello.
0: Hi, Debbie. It's nice to be here.
1: So after six startups between you... Participating on 14 boards, having two children, one dog, and a 166-year-old house, you're experiencing one of the most exciting years of your professional lives. First, congratulations on receiving the AIGA medal. It is so very exciting and so well-deserved.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Debbie.
1: Oh, you're welcome. We're very
0: excited. Yeah, we really are. Well, We're in good company.
1: You're in good company, but it's long overdue. So congratulations. So I want to go back in history a bit. Did you both grow up knowing that you wanted to be designers? Did you ever want to be anything
2: else? Well, I was going to be president of the United States. Oh, good. (laughs) You and Hillary, right? My (laughs) mother had slight ambitions for me. and, And actually, I majored in political science in college the first time around. I graduated from college and then went to design school. And I I wanted to change the world and I thought that politics was the way to do it, which ages me because you would know exactly when I grew up if you thought that politics was the way to change the world. But there was a moment where I decided that actually it was by being a designer that I could change the world, not by going to politics.
1: What gave you that sense? What inspired you to feel that way? It
2: was the 60s. You know, Ralph Kaplan said the greatest design of the 20th century was the sit-in. I think I didn't know that, but I felt that. But then when I discovered there was this thing called design, I realized that it was really shaping things that made the biggest difference.
1: So you went to Tulane University and majored in political st- studies. In yeah, urban studies urban and uh-huh. then went to Parsons to right. study design. What gave you the sense at that point that you wanted to do that? Was there one catalyst aside from the sit in that gave you a sense that, hmm, I don't want to Wood do this, stock, I want to do that. City, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. stuff There it is. Actually, one word answer. I, I,
2: I was a gopher at a tier design firm. These people were designing ships for, they were designing the QE2 and things like it, and that looked like it was really fun. So I decided to check into design school, and then I realized that all my ambitions could be satisfied by going back to design school. I didn't have to design interiors. I could actually do something more courageous and inventive than that. Wow.
1: So, Michael, you have design degrees from Iowa State University and Parsons School of Design. So I'm assuming you always knew you wanted to be a designer?
0: No. Actually, my degree from Iowa State University is a Bachelor of Science because I grew up in a small town in Iowa, and I thought I was going to be a veterinarian. So, oh, that's what, what prevented I...
1: you from being a veterinarian?
0: <laughs> Lack of interest. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I, a lot of the classes that I took – really helped inform things that we did 20 years later. You know, I mean, I did experiments with uh, radioactive isotopes and had a chicken lay a radioactive egg. <laughs> so, did you know, really? It served me well. What did it look it, like? It glowed in the dark. You're joking. <laughs> no, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it tells you if there's a nuclear holocaust, don't eat the eggs. <laughs> okay. <might> <laughs> so, so noted. <laughs> so that was it. I mean, you know, I graduated from Iowa State University. I realized I wanted to do something creative, but I didn't know – I didn't have enough skills. And so I started looking for a a school where I could really experience and learn. and And, you know, here's a kid from Iowa. I think I got on the airplane for the very first time to fly to New York to go to Parsons for an interview because they had this new curriculum called environmental design. It was something about mashing up industrial design and interior design and all kinds of other stuff. And I said, wow, this is for me. And so I packed up all my worldly belongings and moved uh, to New York and went to Parsons School of Design.
1: And now that's where I'm assuming you met. I don't think it was at an AIGA meeting, was it?
0: (laughs) No, no, we did. did, uh, Indirectly meet at Parsons. Yeah, yeah, we did. I mean, you know, I had graduated and I was teaching and Nancy was graduating and then we kind of met in the Hallways, you know. Sort of so
1: thing. No, okay, now I need to. This is a legendary no, we, reading.
2: We did not date while I was at Parsons. Oh no,
0: that wasn't what I was going <laughs> to say. <laughs> while well,
2: he was teaching at Parsons. Okay. Yeah, but anyway, I wasn't going there. <laughs> okay. Actually,
1: where I was going with this was far more romantic. One, which was was it love at first sight? I mean, tell. This is a legendary okay. partnership. I want details. Okay,
2: so I'll tell you the real details. Excellent. Um, so I had to start all over in design school because clearly I had no background in design. So I have a BA and a BFA. Right, yes. Two and we were both married to other people when we came to new york and that that's the true story and i was getting a divorce and i was taking michael's drawing class i think it was a 1 hour class and when I graduated from Parsons as valedictorian of my class at Parsons, no, this is brutal. This is going to be a bad story. I know the, <laughs> the only B I got at Parsons was from Michael. Of course, and he married and he said it was a gift because and it's true. It was a gift because I really am not. I don't draw well, and, I, and he felt bad for me because I was getting a divorce. And I was
0: uh, so he anyway. Took
2: pity on her he with took a B.
0: Pity on me. And gave it me gets a even worse.
2: Okay, good. Keep uh, <laughs> going.
0: Her then roommate uh, at the time came to me and said, I know Nancy's not doing too well. And uh, this woman really cared for Nancy. And I said, well, she, you know, we all know that, don't we? She said, well, you know, she's basically living on a park bench in Washington Square <laughs> Park out of, a, out of a, a shopping bag. No. And I said, she's what? And she said, yeah, she's actually staying up all night. In, she, has, she has no place to live. And I, that just broke my heart. You know? Nancy, wait! What ha-
2: did your husband like? Throw you out? No, I ex-husband? walked out. I was, you know, <laughs> I, you know, it was the seventies. What can I do? Yeah, you? no, I am yeah. like, out of here. reason. I said, you know what? We're not going to get along. We, I, I actually, yeah, was, but at least have
1: gone to the Chelsea Hotel and hung out with I, Patty Smith. Exactly. I Didn't have any
2: money. You know, I was a scholarship student. Anyway. Well, I was so I was so I horrified so. that you know it's like it you know. only
0: lasted a couple of nights actually.
1: So what so Michael, you sort of came in and said, Hey Nancy, I have a couch no. or
0: No, 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 no. I you know, I really we didn't have we didn't have a relationship at all. I mean in that context, other than she was a student and you know so And
1: a bad one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not, not great. A uh, troubled one. Well, she had her issues. Uh, <laughs> you know. But uh it was like a year later, right? So a year later yeah. Yeah, this is we the, ran the, to each other on the
2: street and he asked me out to lunch.
1: What made you decide to do that?
0: It just
2: seemed
1: like a good idea, you know? Did you feel a spark? Suddenly she wasn't a student anymore? You saw her as a grown-up?
0: Yeah, that, that was part of it. I mean, you know, she was a smart, good-looking girl, you know? So, young woman, whatever, you know? so <laughs> uh, the, the way we actually
2: rekindled after the B was that I was doing a big project under a grant, and we were doing a, a redesign of the Union Square subway station, and I needed photostats. Oh. And someone said, You know, I understand Michael Donovan, who works for the Vignellis, they have a stat machine. A stat machine was about the size of this. It, it was radio literally the booth. size oh, of yeah. this. It literally. Absolutely. With a huge
0: camera outside.
1: I was a very good stat maker, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have yeah, to tell yeah. you. <laughs> well, I, so, every, every young for
0: designer starts out in this, yeah. you know, or used to in the stat machine. And right? cutting
2: Ruby lips. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah got I it. had skills. Yeah, yeah. Press type. Anyway, so I called I still use that. I called Michael. Oh, well, we have to trade sources. Yeah. Um, I called Michael and said, I understand you have a stat machine, and we started making stats together. That's actually how we got together. And the lunch I can't remember the lunch, I think lunch came a little later.
1: So, Michael, you were working for Massimo at the time.
2: Yeah.
1: Did you get that job straight out of college? Who gets a job with Massimo? Like you and Michael, <laughs> the two people together, Michael, Michael Beirut. Yeah. How, how do you get a job with Massimo Vignelli?
0: To make a long story short, I was plucked out of my senior class by one of my professors, a wonderful designer by the name of Ed Seacon, who was doing, he did all the work for companies like the Pottery Barn, and he designed furniture, he designed the stores. He asked me if I'd like to work for him. What student wouldn't be flattered, you know? So the minute I graduated, I started working for him in his studio, and he's just two people, Ed and I. And I worked for him for maybe six months or something like that. He was gone a lot, and it started getting lonely. You know, being by yourself all the time. Although I have to tell you one story, uh, speaking of press type. So Ed comes rushing in one day and says to me, quick, we need a logo for the Pottery Barn. And he said, do it. And uh, I went, well, okay. And I went over to a flat file and shuffled through, and I found some press type. Awesome. (laughs) Press type. And so I did this kind of tight, letter-spaced Pottery Barn with Helvetica Medium, because that's all we had, right? And I put it on a couple of boards, and and I did something that looked like a sign, and this and that, and he grabbed it and ran off, and he came back a couple of hours later and said, done. That's the new Pottery Barn identity. It lasted for 25 years. Yes, it did.
1: I did. I remember the Pottery Barn outlet on 10th Avenue between 23rd and 24th Street. I loved going there. That
0: would be me, you know. Oh, that's so awesome. But anyway... When I was going to Parsons, I was working at a design firm uh, an interior design firm that worked for uh brokerage firms and and banks and things like that. It's a really cool place They had really really nice design and I worked like forty hours a week while I was a full time student. The owner of the firm was a taught at Parsons and he just gave us the keys and so we'd go to parsons we'd work from four to seven or eight in his office, and at eight o'clock we'd take their work up and put our work down and work till midnight or something you know so one of the guys there became a friend, and I called him up one day. I'm making too long a story out of this. But no, anyway, you're not. No, you're not. I, I said, Nancy, saying, yeah, sure. But uh, <laughs> uh, I He's said, I, I'm kind of looking for a job. And he said, well, I know this amazing Italian woman. She's new to town. I met her the other night at a cocktail party. Why don't you give her a call? Because she's looking for somebody that can do the things that you can do, sort of environmental design, furniture design, you know, blah, kind of the whole thing. And I said, great. So I called Layla at Unimark. Unimark International. And she said, yeah, and Layla said, yeah, come on over. When can you come? And I said, I don't know. And she said, how about this afternoon? I said, sure. Remember, I was hired right out of school. I never put together a portfolio, right? So I just kind of like cobbled together this mess. But you had the Pottery
1: Barn logo. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) And over I went, and uh, it was supposed to be a 45-minute meeting, and about an hour and a half later, I realized that I, I not only had been hired, we were already working. So that was it. You know, I showed up the next morning at Unimark black and white office and Swiss designers and Italian designers. It was probably a couple of days before I met Massimo. What was that like? It was great. I mean, you know, worked both Capricorns. It was love at first sight. And uh seriously, I mean we yeah, just earthy
1: banged, and bang. You know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we
0: liked each other and so there it went. Unimark did a lot of branding and marketing communications and graphic design. You know, they were doing the knoll stuff and the subway map and all that stuff there. And And did you contribute to that work? No. (laughs) I did not. Uh, But I did do some exhibitions for Panasonic, and uh, we worked on some museums, and we did a dormitory, Layla and I, for Williams College. So I was really working with Layla, doing three-dimensional stuff, furniture and interiors. We did this amazing prototype for good humor. They thought they wanted to be in the retail business, and we designed these huge... Mosmo colors, you know, super warm red, uh, saturated yellow, green, the rainbow colors, as he calls them. Big fiberglass booth with a big dome over it. You remember that, Nancy? I remember them well. Yeah, and it was an amazing place. But uh, and they decided they didn't want to be in the retail business. So that was it, you know, and we worked along happily. And then one day, it's about 7 o'clock at night, 7.30 at night, and they came over, Massimo and Layla, very, very, very serious. And uh, I thought, well, Crap, you know, I, they're not going to fire me. But They had that look, you know. They're not going to fire me because I'm working too hard. And they said, so look, we're going to leave Unimark and start a company called Vignelli Associates. And we want you to join us and be the associates. So <laughs> so that was it. That's how that whole thing happened.
1: That's amazing. So no, at this very time in your life, you're also now dating Nancy. No, no, no. no oh, this hadn't crazy. even started then. Yeah, Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I was still married.
1: So how far into the time, as you got involved in your relationship, did you decide to then start your own business together?
2: I mean, that's a huge commitment. Well, Michael had been there a while. Timing is everything. I mean, if you don't believe me, believe Malcolm Gladwell, right? Right, of (laughs) course. Timing is absolutely everything. And at that moment in time, there weren't that many design firms, actually, The natural progression of things is you went to work for somebody and then you went off on your own. I mean it was kind of like everyone did that. That was the routine. And Michael was kind of thinking that maybe it was time to start thinking about being on his own. I was just graduating. I got a job for the interior design firm I'd been the gopher for before I went to school. I mean I was never meant to be an interior designer and I knew it was a mistake – he was thinking about maybe he would go freelance and start his own. And the Vignellis were, as you would imagine, they are so gracious and so loving and supportive. And they basically said, go, we'll help you find clients. We'll give you and clients. They, and they did. I mean, they you know,
0: did. It, I mean, it was nuts. I mean, I had the best job on the planet, you know? <laughs> I mean, I had two people I loved working with. We started in their house up in Riverdale. And Layla and I would flip a coin to see who was going to make lunch, you know? And we'd sit down and have lunch together. And you know, I'd cook one day, she'd cook the next day. And uh, every party that they ever gave, I was always part of. And they gave a lot of parties. The parties would be Mario Bellini and uh, Marco Zanuso and Gaia Lente, And, you know, I mean, every great Italian designer, they didn't come to New York without looking at Massimo and it's Sometimes staying with them, you know. So, But they were very generous and very,
2: uh, again, very interested, as you would know Massimo would be, and Layla as well, to let people kind of fly little bird, you know, leave the nest, we'll help you. So Michael and I were just together and we'd gotten an offer to do a project for New Jersey State Council of the Arts, Artists in Schools program to do a project in a high school. And so I quit my job and he was sort of starting on his own and we did this project together. And we decided that it might be nice to actually try to do some work together.
1: So, Nancy, you've said that working with Michael early on and learning from him and the Vignellis, Mm -hmm. his mentors, Mm -hmm. shaped your view of what great design could be. Um, In what way? How did this sort of trio of designers influence what you thought design could be?
2: You know, My strength as a designer always from day one was my sort of logical, rational, analytic, pattern-making brain. You know, it was sort of what I always did. But I wasn't really – creative like they were. And so when I met Massimo and Leila and, of course, Michael, they really shaped my view of design in a very different way. It Sort of took it from the pattern making part into the part of, you know, what is good design? And you know, what does that really mean? What are the principles? If you've ever worked in or around the Vignellis, there's just such a deep love of the process as well as the outcome. And you get kind of totally into that and see that in a different way. So hanging around these guys and then working with Michael took me to a different place and it kind of connected all the dots for me.
1: Did you enjoy his modernist and sort of rational approach to design? Oh, totally.
2: I mean, I was a modernist from the time I knew what the word meant. I just don't like decoration. (laughs) (laughs) I've become more decorative in my older years, but, you know, that sort of rational – Everything that Massimo did and stood for made so much sense to me. The program at Parsons was quite extraordinary. Michael alluded to it, but I was also in that environmental design program. And we got design correlations with Jim Catavolis, and we got photography and graphic design and object design and furniture design and architecture with a guy who studied with Lou I mean We had every single possible person sort of teach us about form making. And so when you got through it, you couldn't do anything. But you were really well educated. <laughs> and I think that... <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, you know, this, this was, I will yes. remind you, the 70s. But Alan Tate, who was the chairman of the department, the first day, we all sat in this auditorium. And he said, if you think I'm training, you get a job. When you graduate, you're wrong. All right. So the whole thing was not about getting a job, the thing was about becoming, you know, a great thinker and yeah. a great doer of design and, you know, change the world, but uh, don't try to get a job doing reflected ceiling plans because you won't know how to do that when you graduate <laughs> from this program. Anyway, I think that the Masmo, Leila, Michael connection for me was getting real about how do you take all these principles and these big ideas and how do you make them quite substantial in the world?
1: So you've been in business together. And you've had different sort of sidebar stints that have been quite extraordinary, which I want to talk about. But overall, you started your firm in 1974.
0: Mm -hmm. It's 40
1: Mm -hmm. years.
0: Gee, that long? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wow. It's amazing. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. It's
1: it's extraordinary. Now, did you ever worry about partnering both in sort of life and in business? Was it ever something that you worried about or –
2: we went into therapy.
1: <laughs> to be yeah. perfectly honest, early on, uh, couples we, we, therapy. We we lived together
2: and didn't
0: live together for a while. You know? Yeah, we,
2: we yeah. Uh, you know we just said this is too much. And after we were in business together, we separated for about a year or two, and then got back together and got married. Actually, I mean, we are still doing
0: business, you know. But. Yeah,
2: yeah, but it was no, it was complicated, complicated you know. Yeah. And we made no kidding about the couples therapy. I think every good partnership business probably goes into therapy or something like it. person mediation. Are you kidding? You can call it conflict resolution, mediation, therapy, whatever Whatever you you want to call it. Socialization. Yeah. 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 But, you know, we, we developed some ground rules that really helped. And one of them is that over time we decided that we loved, loved being in business together, but we really didn't always like working together. It got better for us as the business got bigger because we had our own clients. We had our own projects. We always relied on each other for ideas and you know, what do you think about this? And this is a mess. What what can I do? And, you know, all the kinds of things you rely on the person who's got your back. But we didn't walk into every meeting together or mediate every creative decision together. That would have been hopeless. The other thing that we did is even in our personal lives, we've divided and conquered. You know, we both like to cook. He's really good at it. So, you know what? I didn't like it that much. And I decided the kitchen was his. We kind of made all sorts of Accommodations to our separateness in order to be together so much.
1: How did you get business in those early years?
0: Business got us. I mean, you know, never did figure that out. (laughs) We were just so lucky. I mean, the first project, the really big project that we had, a colleague from the Unimark days called me up. I remember I was standing in Nancy's kitchen. We weren't living together yet, and this woman said, "Uh, "How would you like to do the uh, the, an exhibition on uh, the history of IBM?"
1: Oh, just a small little commission.
0: I said, where is it? And she said, well, it'll be on the corner of 57th and Madison, Madison and across 57th Street. And I said, gee, it sounds pretty interesting. She said, yeah, I said, you'd like to do it. And she said, there's only one caveat. I don't know if she used the word caveat because she was Dutch, but anyway, (laughs) uh, she said, there's only one issue. You have to uh, work with Charles and and Ray Eames because, of course, you know, he's on retainer with IBM and everything that happens at IBM happens under his sort of tutelage or guidance. And I'm like... I can do that. <laughs> you know? It was terrifying, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. No, but I mean, <laughs> who well, wouldn't be? It, but I mean, that's you know, unbelievable. It I was
2: exciting.
1: Tell us about working with Charles and Ray Eames. What was that like? What did you learn from them? What was the biggest thing you learned from
0: them? Here's the thing that's kind of interesting. Now I have two, two sets of role models. First, I have Massimo and Layla, you know, a couple that work together, live together, eat together, pretty much inseparable don't agree on everything, of course. You Hardly. Know, from from design. <laughs> so one of the things I learned, I learned how to like listen to both, one in the left ear, one in the right ear, and because they won't stop talking, you know. And, right, yeah. and they won't relent. Right. You know? It's like you turn your head and the other one just keeps talking. So you turn your head back and the other keeps Talk about conflict resolution. I became a master. <laughs> and at it's
1: in the... an Italian. <laughs> and it's an Italian.
0: And you're so stupid, Massimo. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> you don't understand anything. <laughs> this is the only person that can talk to him. Like that, <laughs> <laughs> so you know. Here, here's one couple, and then I find myself uh, shortly thereafter in another relationship with another couple that live and work together. They had this amazing studio at uh, 901 North Washington Boulevard in in uh, Venice, California, an old trolley barn that had every remnant, every artifact, every scrap of every design project they'd ever touched on the walls, on the floor, piled up on tables amazing, right? And I'd go there pretty regularly. And you know, we had some other things happening. We were starting to grow the office a little bit. And I was hiring some other people. And I went to him one day and we had lunch together every day because they had a cook, uh, which I thought was really cool. But, you know, that where they were, there weren't any restaurants around back in those days in Venice. So he had this wonderful cook and make these amazing things. So we were having lunch and just the three of us. And I said, uh, Charles, how do you find good people, great people to work for you? how do you find good designers, I think. think that's what I said. And he said, Michael, I don't hire designers. I hire really smart people. If they're smart, they'll get the design. I mean, that's easy. You know, one of the people that worked for him for years was a musician, and another one was a mathematician, you know, and Deborah Sussman worked for him. Wow. (laughs) You know, and she's pretty amazing, right? So he had this amazing group of people that maybe – 40% 40% of them had actually been trained as designers or architects or something, you know. So I thought that was such great advice. And Nancy and I have taken that advice to heart. I mean, you know, the people that work for us have kind of come from that same kind of with that idea. Anyway, I mean, here. Were, here were these two amazing experiences with two amazing couples. And it certainly influenced me and us. It's like, oh, there's a good model. You can work together and live together and argue occasionally and eat good food together and do great work. Charles had about four clients. IBM, IBM, Herman Miller, the USIA, you know, like he did the World's Fairs and things like that. Maybe he had three clients, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I thought that was a great model. One of the things that Nancy and I figured out almost from day one was that if you want to do the work that you want to do, you have to do it with the people that that have the same kind of uh, commitment to solving the problem the best possible way, which is almost always a founder or CEO. Right. Yes. And, you know, Charles worked with Max Dupree, the guy that ran Herman Miller, and he worked with uh, Watson at IBM, the CEO and one of the founders. And As a, a way of uh, telling, giving you a little bridge,
2: we did start off with some amazing clients. We started off with IBM and Corning and just by people we knew, the Vignellis, Luck, you know, whatever. We had this extraordinary roster and we awakened one day about three years into it or so and we had had a few really bad experiences working for middle managers where we got in the wrong direction, kind of. We weren't really in charge. We'd done a really big project. It was a disaster, not of our own making. It was just we were politically caught in the middle of something. We Which at, happens a lot. <laughs> we looked at each other and said, you know what? That's that. We're too young. We're too inexperienced to work for these big companies. So we're not going to work for them anymore. We're going to look for small companies our kind of clients, where we can work with CEOs, and we ended up actually who care, who care about design. Who care about design, and we met. We met a wonderful small furniture company called Brickell Ward Bennett and Brickell, and we ended up doing everything for them. And through them, ended up back at Knoll and Herman Miller and all the great furniture companies. So for about almost a decade, we worked mostly in, in that industry and in real estate, but always for owners. And we didn't even touch a big corporate client again, until we came back in at the top some number of years later when we'd worked our way back up there.
1: So if you were to give a mid-level designer some advice about how to work with middle managers in the design business, because there are so many now, and design direction mm-hmm. and in-house design direction is such a big part of the design business. What would you tell them? How would you suggest that they work most successfully?
2: I think it's really important to trust your instincts. I mean, we had great relationship at p and I know you've had great relationships with big clients. It's really finding the clients within the client who respect What you bring to the party, and maybe turning down the work where you really feel like you're a number. It's really hard to say that because we we were building a business. We never had any funding. It was always we We, never never had a salesperson. We didn't have rich families. You know, we really had to make it on our own effort. You often do take things because you need to. I mean, especially at the beginning. uh, Particularly at the beginning. But I think when you put your antenna up and you say, "I want to do this." You find the thing you want to find, and there is an opportunity cost to not looking hard enough for the thing you want because you get so busy in the things you have to do that you don't have time to have your antenna up to look for the thing you want. So for us, it was passing on that big lucrative corporate work because it wasn't satisfying and we weren't didn't feel good at it. And looking for things that were, were good enough, that we could be at pain enough for, but that were really felt right in terms of exercising our muscles and really helping us grow and really contribute. If you really feel like you're using all of you, you know, in a situation, it doesn't matter where it is, but if you feel like you're not, then it's important to take a step back and say, where might that happen for me? I mean, it may happen working for nonprofits on the side. There may be some place where you use all those all those smarts that you think you have,
1: yeah there's something I think really remarkably fulfilling and incredibly lucky about feeling like you're good at what you're
2: doing, yeah mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. and there's something that's soul numbing you know you start off thinking and you're right, I mean designers have such incredible capacity to solve. Lots of different kinds of problems to contribute in so many different ways, and we don't always get the chance to do that. You know, I remember when I was president of AIGA. You know, you've been through this too. Why don't we get no respect? You know, <laughs> it's been the it's the age <laughs> old question. It's like it's like just Groundhog Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and now maybe we'll get to. I mean, I have a big job in a small company with a lot of power. I still have this. It is always the issue. They don't understand what designers bring to the party. But I think that if you don't continue to exercise those really extraordinary muscles that you start to develop in design school, if you don't feel like you're exercising those muscles, you have to figure out a way to do it. Again, if you don't exercise them and you don't test yourself against some of the bigger, harder problems that you're really capable of solving, then you won't develop the capacity to continue to solve them.
1: Absolutely. And and if you can't find it in your day job, you have to create it for yourself. You That's have right. To, you have to do your own self-generated mm-hmm. work right. at night. Mm-hmm. And there's
2: so much. I mean, now, every time has its opportunity. Our time was that there were only twelve design firms in New York. So if someone was coming to interview one of us, they interviewed all twelve of us and we knew it. And sometimes we get the client and sometimes Carbone Smollen would get them and sometimes and Geismar would get them and some you
0: know I, it, I always <laughs> schedule the uh, last appointment of the day. <laughs>
2: so you go out drinking
1: afterwards. <laughs> they go around Madison well, wait, Square here, Park. So
0: here's the, here's the thing that's funny. I mean <laughs> and this is absolutely true. I mean at one point the design industry this so goes way back. Unimark was on at fourteen East 62nd Street wife and Geismar was up in the Girl Scout building on 3rd Avenue and 40 something. So that's where everybody wanted to be was Midtown. And then oh, rents got it high. I mean, this is classic, right? And so everybody then moved downtown. And we moved around Madison Square Park, which was a slum there. Yeah, you know, right. I mean, there was one place to eat, it was this Irish bar, but everybody had a different address. Somebody had a 26th Street address, someone had a Broadway address, someone had a Fifth Avenue address. We were at 1 Madison Avenue. We were up in the MetLife Tower, you know. Oh, wow. And we had the top three floors up there, which was fabulous. But I knew if somebody was coming to town that they were going to be seeing at least five or six of these people. So I'd always say, gee, I'm really busy, but I'd love to see you like at four. <laughs> is that right? And they say, "Yeah, four is fine." And then they, about three o'clock, they'd call up because they allocated time to travel. <laughs> you know, you're going to 1520 Broadway and 79 Fifth Avenue. Well, it's half; it's across <laughs> Madison Square Park, right? <laughs> right. And they didn't know that, so but I knew that. So I'd say, "Yeah, yeah, come on over, come on over." So they come over, and then we do you know our slideshow because we all did that. Absolutely. Right? Now it's about four thirty or five, and I'd say, "You guys want a glass of wine?" Ah, oh, great idea! You know, <laughs> so I always had. You know, we always had. You know, it's like, oh, it's the end of the day. This was fun. We're way up on, you know, one Madison well, Avenue. Well, anyway, that's
2: the secret. That that is now the true secret to our success. <laughs> <laughs> good wine, the wine. <laughs> right it, anyway. yeah. But but yeah. Th- what I was going to say, where I was going with that, this is the Irish thing. Where I was going with that was that the time then was there weren't many of us, and so yeah. you always got your shot. You know, someone hire us. They hire Cumbon Small. They hire Ivan Shemaya. We always felt good when yeah, yeah. it was hey, all fine. It's 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 good for the people, you know. But now it's that you actually can do work yourself. You know, and you now can come up with projects. You now can see them into reality. And then that was really hard to do because of the channel. There was a lot of friction in the world for doing work, and we all did work for other companies. We didn't do that much work for ourselves unless it was artful. You know, we didn't Mm -hmm. do business Mm -hmm. work for ourselves. And I think the opportunity now is that designers can work for a living. The designers can work and do design things that are not necessarily what pays the rent, but that really stimulates not only themselves but others and creates community around design. And there's all sorts of other kinds of things that can be done. And it's really important.
1: So you decided to sell Donovan & Green to CKS in 1996. So really at the very... 95. 95. We actually it took a year
2: to do the deal. So we actually <laughs> did the deal in 96. But it was really early. We were probably the you very first. You were one of the first. Yeah. 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 yeah, which was good for us because there were no formulas. It was really a deal engineered by the guy who was the head of Interpublic at the time, Phil Geyer. He was a friend of Dominion Green's. He loved us. He had major invested in CKS. They were going to go public. And he felt like they needed adult supervision on the East Coast. And he sort of felt like it would be really great if they would buy us. It was intriguing, of course, and flattering, of course, but we were doing fine. We were happy where we were. So we just made a deal that we thought if we're gonna sell it, we would accept this offer. And they said yes. Good for you. So it's what what it came down to. But it took a while for us to warm up to the idea and the reason we warmed up to the idea is that we really knew that the internet was important and we knew we didn't know enough. To actually get into that business, we were very excited to be connected to CKS in particular, because it was there were three Apple guys, including Tom Souter, who was the first art director at Apple right and we loved their design aesthetic, which was the only internet company in the world who we could say that about. We felt like they loved design as much as we did. And being owned by them seemed
0: and, possible. And, and, their, and their, their primary client uh, was Steve Jobs.
2: Right. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, it, seemed, it all seemed like, well, wow, you know, this is – they're going to pay us the price we want. By the way, no stock. We didn't want to take any stock. All cash deal. All cash up front. Yep. Oh, up front. nice. Yeah. And it seemed like a dream come true until a year later they merged with another company, U.S. Web. That was okay. But then that started – the slide. Into, and, and
1: that was just the bigger and bigger and bigger yeah, bigger, bigger, and bigger balloon. Bigger, yeah, right, and, yeah,
2: you know, yeah. that was not really what we wanted to do. Yeah. But
1: you still stayed four years. Yeah.
2: Well, Nancy, we had, we had a, you know, you had a contract. and But we also had people, you right. know, we had people who'd been with us since the beginning. I mean, we had an incredible group of people by then. When we sold it, we had about 80 people and probably a third of them had been with us a very long time. And in all this, we were pretty much left alone. So our clients were great. It was in that period of time that we opened American Girl Place. So we were doing some incredible things while we were owned. It was only toward the end when the uh, third owner said, no, 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 we want to get rid of everyone's name. We want to merge it all into one bucket. And we knew that we couldn't do what we did in that in that world. So. Now,
1: Nancy, you've said that the selling of Donovan & Green at that time, was a major, scary, and an extremely important step in your personal development. How so?
2: Donald Green was our family. You know, it was what we did. And we'd started I'd started in my 20s. And I thought I would always be there, as did Michael. So here we were. You know, it was over the course of about a few months only that we were suddenly, literally, out on the street. And we had to figure out what we were going to do with the rest of our lives. We were still really had a lot to do. And you're really young. <laughs> we were really young with a lot to do and without right. ever a thought that there would be an after Domin and Green. One of the good things that happened was that they gave us our name back immediately because he didn't want it, so that was great. So Domin Green didn't exist anymore, which was a good thing. But then we wandered around from 2000 to about 2008 doing a lot of other things. We started some businesses. I went to work for Zurich Financial Services to build a branding group for them. As and you were of,
1: the chief brand officer. Yeah.
2: So I was going back and forth to And Zurich. then you were
1: the CEO of Waterworks.
2: And then I went into Waterworks as CEO. Yes.
1: And when I heard that news, I was really overjoyed, not only because it was an amazing opportunity for you and I was a big fan of everything that you had been doing and you were the first woman AIGA president and so many reasons to admire you, but I thought, oh, she's showing the world that it's possible to go from being a designer to running a company sure and and that was remarkable so how did you go from designer, business owner, to CEO of this extraordinary
2: company called Waterworks. Well, it was an obviously a design-driven company. And but it's, still, it's bathroom appliances. Yeah, and yes, know. And they're maybe beautiful know. and very no, expensive, and, but, right. but uh, yeah, it's a yeah. very different business. And it was; it had a lot of challenges at that moment. I really oversaw taking it from being a completely non-digital company to having a digital relationship to its customers, which was absolutely necessary and hard to do you know, as designers, particularly designers that sit beside CEOs, you always think, "Oh, that's not so hard. I could do that." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I mean, uh, yeah, how, it, hard it's, it. <laughs> how hard? And I'd, you know, we'd run dominant Green. Come on, right? What's so hard about that? You know, running, business
1: is messy. It's mm.
2: messy and it's courageous. I learned more in many of the things that Michael and I both did through those almost decade of not being in the design business, being in it but being in in a different way, Mm. that it's really hard to take these risks. And we took them beside CEO clients. We spent their money, we took their budgets, and we did things that were risky for them, but they weren't really risky for us. You know, even if it felt risky because it may not be creative enough or this may fail on some, it wasn't really risky. I mean, I didn't understand risk until I became a CEO briefly. Until we started companies and lost other people's money. And we came back into the design business in 2008. So you were really on the forefront of the design business
1: morphing into the branding business, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially yeah. since back in, I guess, once you first left CKS, one of your first commissions was to actually be a chief brand That's officer right. and then help replace mm-hmm. your position with somebody that would stay full time. Right. Why do you think that the tide turned in that direction?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because all through the 90s, I was involved with something that you probably have been to, Design Management Institute and Peter Lawrence. Sure. DMI. DMI. And then with Peter, looking at how you glue design schools to business schools. You know, when you put those two together, who teaches what course? We thought a lot about those kinds of things all through the 90s. But it seemed to be a drop in the bucket. I mean, IBM said good design is good business way back when. Mm -hmm. But again, what that really meant in terms of the deeper strategy of the company, I mean, we have a tremendous legend of American designers doing incredible work for American companies. But somehow when all the technology thing happened, we lost our way with that. Businesses lost their way. It was like, what's your multiple? What can we tell the shareholders once a quarter? It's interesting how we've turned into such a quarter culture. <laughs> yes, and well, <laughs> yeah. design doesn't work that way. You know, Design is, is really thinking about a strategy in a broader sense, thinking about the industry we're in, thinking about the impact we make on the real recipients of our work. I think all the work we did through the 90s, I mean through the 2000s, of starting businesses, trying to have design be at the core of it and realizing that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You know, sometimes it really is just about marking sales on the blackboard, (laughs) and that's really what it's about, and design is superficial in some of those situations. And when can you really employ deep design thinking in a problem? In the end, it comes down to what it came down to in the very beginning of time, which is finding those clients – that really have that way of thinking. And I think there are more than there were, thanks to Apple, by the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, they realized Apple became the most valuable company in the world based on design.
1: Michael, you have not only been working with clients in this manner, but you are also a bit of a serial entrepreneur. Hmm. So as I was doing my research on all the different things and that you've worked on together and all the different clients that you've had, I also saw that you are the founder of a company called CO2 Responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, you started that in 2009. So mm-hmm. it's been five years that you're doing that. Mm-hmm. You're the founder of Asphalt Media. You started that in 2001. So you sort of just collect these <laughs> new titles without giving any away, um, and that's a media company, and you're also a partner in EQ Media, which is a direct response television company. So tell us about why you feel the need to start all of these startups.
0: I mean, I think one of the things that's exciting about what we do what and what design is about is when you see a problem, when you solve the problem, let's say for one client or for one situation or one environment, and if you look out there and realize that there's Hopefully, a big market for this solution. you know you're on your way to thinking about a new business. And so asphalt media, the idea was to put branding and, and advertising on uh, tractor trailers that you could control, and we used GPS units and the Federal Department of Highway Statistics so we could measure where they were and how many people saw them. and all. it was really a good idea. And it lasted 13 years. Yeah. And, you know, like the first year, we made a million and a half bucks, you know? I mean, as a startup, bang, you know, with me doing the sales, which I don't like. Over time, we burned through that money, and it just got to be too hard, and it just didn't make enough money, and it was a, became a distraction. But CO2 responsible is, is exciting. It's a way in the automotive industry to create a zero-carbon footprint for a vehicle and save customers sixteen to $2,400 a year on fuel, and it's all kind of managed and driven online, and you can manage and reduce your carbon footprint by doing about 75 different things. And it's kind of nifty. And we're still working on that. Our latest one, and probably the most exciting, is something called Outer Places. Outer Places. Outer places.
1: It's spectacular. Yeah. First yeah. of all, I don't know if you know this, but I am a rabid, still to this day, X-Files fan. Oh, oh great. Um, yeah, yeah, I yeah. just recently saw Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny uh, speak, uh-huh. and, and the possibility that there could be an X-Files 3 yeah. has me sort of <laughs> <Spinning>. <laughs> ecstatic. Yeah, but yeah. So, so talk about Outer Places. Describe what it is and talk about how you started it and why you started it. Sure.
0: A friend of mine called me up at one point and said, well, you know a lot about retail and retail destinations. American Girl worked out pretty well. Yeah, and, I would say uh, so. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but we, had done, we, we helped uh, develop Sony's retail business and created a format for Hallmark that was very, very successful. We, we did a bunch of other things in that category. So, yeah, we did know something about retail and retail destination and customer experience. He said, well, how would you like to do something for the International UFO Museum? and research center in Roswell, New Mexico. I'm like, what?
1: Did you think that you died and gone to heaven? No, I thought the guy was nuts.
0: (laughs) Are you crazy? Roswell, New Mexico. I didn't even know there was a UFO museum there.
1: So you weren't a ufologist? Uh, No, not then.
0: (laughs) I didn't even know that was a word. (laughs) Nancy, (laughs) where have you been? Where have you (laughs) been? So uh, I said, geez, you know, this takes a lot. I don't know. And he kept after me. So one day I was just sort of futzing around. And uh, you go to YouTube and you do a search for, say, aliens, UFO, and Roswell mm-hmm. and take the three most popular posts in, in those three categories. Debbie, do you know how many people have watched a video in those three categories? I don't
1: know, but I've contributed to that number.
0: Well, I'll tell you, 188,750,000 mm-hmm. people as of about a year and a half ago, right? I am in good company. Sure you are. That's an amazing audience. And it's unrepresented. It's fragmented. It kind of moves everywhere from the— We're
1: marginalized, Michael. Passionate
0: <laughs> true believers to, uh, in Debbie's case, to, you know, just the marginally curious, right? So that was the beginning. And, and we spent almost two years developing the site. Uh, we've changed directions several times. It was called Roswell Sightings for a long time. And we we we've got, have all these licensing agreements and publishing agreements. And it was a big—it's a lot of work. And here's the kind of the interesting moment. I mean, the one thing about when you do this yourself and you're sort of like it's 10 o'clock at night and you're thinking, what typeface should I use? <laughs> what should the background be? It sounds like fun. It is because you say self, <laughs> what do you like? <laughs> it's simple as that. You know, it's not like I'll show them three examples, right? I'll show them how I got there, right? It's like I'm doing this. So we were working hard on getting this thing ready to launch. And I kept thinking about telling the story. Everything that we do is about a story. Every time I told the story to you or a lawyer or somebody, they always sort of drug me over to the UFO side, Roswell sightings, do you believe, blah, blah, blah. And that's not the point. Our idea was this was sort of a channel like CBS, you know, for science and science fiction and all this other stuff. So in the middle of the night... Just as we were starting to, like, get the documents together, the offering documents, we paid lawyers money. I said, I can't do this. Why? It's the wrong name. It's the wrong idea. It takes people over to one place. Conspiracy theories. You know, yeah. This is about outer places where science meets science fiction. And so the next morning, I ran into the office and said, can we get outerplaces? You know, .com. And we could. And so the rest just kind of went.
1: My favorite part of the site is how you can rate each UFO sighting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, It's given a credibility rate (laughs) from 1 to 10. yeah. yeah. So has this influenced your belief that the truth is out there?
0: Here's the thing. Our little solar system is around 4 billion years old. The universe, which is ever-expanding, is 13 billion years old.
1: And there's
0: the possibility that there's multiverses. Precisely. And I won't get this right, although it's on our site, and you can get the mathematical explanation for this, and I highly recommend it. There are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on every beach on Earth. So how could you possibly suggest that we're it? You know, one of the things interesting, both of us have
2: undergraduate degrees and other things. I was just thinking... We love content. You know, we started off doing exhibitions, and I think that we're ending up kind of where we started, which is lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of content.
1: But, Nancy, you're also working with the CEO of a company called The Medicines Company, MDCO, Mm -hmm. and are working to transform the company. You've come in as the chief design and brand officer. Mm -hmm. You're leading a group of senior people who themselves are leading the following strategy and portfolio management, learning, branding, communications, I mean, tell us what design can do for medicine company.
2: Well, a company, it's a biotech pharma company, very sort of cutting edge in what it does. What's interesting about it is the guy who is the CEO loves design, and he's a design thinker big time. And so he decided that he needed design by his side to do these, all these launches and all this transformation of his company to be a real global powerhouse in intensive care medicine. And in the senior team, they have, of course, the people who sell and the people who develop drugs. And there's a design office. And design, this is what he did over his Christmas vacation. Design stands for Design, Education, Strategy, Information, and Global Networks design. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me I up. Said, I said, really? <laughs> really? All right. I'll do that. Nice <laughs> little,
1: little holiday project. Yeah. yeah right. Right. So,
2: so basically, I'm running a group that does all of the learning and all of the designing of everything. And it's, it's really interesting because he thinks design thinking and the way one thinks about everything should be governed by good design principles.
1: It's so interesting because it really seems to be calling upon all of your various skills. It's almost like these jobs find you because of that.
2: Well, you know, we used to have this funny group of people who worked for us. We had architects, designers, graphic designers. Filmmakers, we had filmmakers, writers, writers and anthropologists, right, you know, all those different kinds of people. And our friends in the design business, would, we often would get a call saying, this kid just came to interview with us. We don't have a job for them, but we thought they should talk to you. Because <laughs> it was some oddball person who did something oddball because we've always... always—we're usually really smart. <laughs> <laughs> we've had this varied but um, broad practice of design, which is I think you're right. I think we seek people who really think broadly, and we do work that's pretty broad. And every single client we're working with now is a client we've had since the first Donovan and Green. They've come back for something.
1: Well, they've come back for your remarkable minds. After <laughs> 40 years in business, <laughs> you are doing the best work of your career, and that is an incredible accomplishment.
0: You know what's really amazing? I uh, remarked to Nancy the other day. I was looking at something, and I said, pretty amazing. You managed to get an extra week into the month. (laughs) She she actually had 200 hours. (laughs) But, you know, you know, how did you do that? No, no
2: work life balance. It's all life. (laughs) That's what's nice about not having children at home. You know, one one of the things I will say is that (laughs) who's feeding the dog. Oh, my God. (laughs) The real privilege of what we do as designers is that we can do it the rest of our lives. And there aren't many things that actually get better the longer you do them. Not repetitive, not boring, always new things to do, always new problems to tackle, and we're lucky that we can still do it.
1: Nancy Green, Michael Donovan, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. I hope you do it for a lot longer. <laughs>
0: thank you, <laughs> thank Debbie. You. you are a great interviewer. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it. So thank good.
1: You. you can find out more about Nancy Green and Michael Donovan at donovanandgreen.com. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.